You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, and I'm joined by Matthew Rosenquist. Matthew is a former cybersecurity strategist for Intel Corp. Uh, 30-year security career uh, with operational, strategic, analytical, organizational, and leadership experience. He advises and collaborates with uh, top academia, businesses, and governments around the world specializing in best practices and emerging risks and opportunities. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's get to it. Um, we are obviously seeing more and more uh, cyber attacks in the news or news of cyber attacks making the press, uh, ransomware infections, malware, data breaches, voter tampering, which is becoming another issue again as we approach election uh, season, uh, obviously intellectual property harvesting and, and, and so on. What are your thoughts on this? Like, is this becoming like a growing systemic problem that we have right now? It is, unfortunately. Um, and, uh, you know, the challenges that we have, and it's it's not going to slow down anytime, anytime soon, because we're really looking at, at multiple forces at play here. We've got more people and devices and systems and data, and that means more vulnerabilities, too. But then we've got those assets being targeted by more attackers, and that results in greater impacts. So we've got a lot of challenges coming up, and they're not going to go anyway soon. We're the industry itself is is almost in a crescendo moment, and there's a lot of instability. So it's it's an interesting time for cybersecurity, uh, especially in light of how we are as a society embracing technology, especially digital technology. And with that, we also inherit new cyber risks. And many times we don't see that other aspect. We're quick to jump, and then afterwards we think, oh wow, wait a second, what did I just get myself into? So. The entire industry is changing, and people are being drawn in because of that, and they're being victimized. So we're going to see a lot more of this. So earlier this month, the city of Baltimore experienced a ransomware attack, effectively paralyzed the city and records and and computers for a lot of uh, workers there. Um, My understanding is that the cyber criminals utilized an NSA-developed hacking tool, uh, to carry out this uh, activity. There's a lot of discussion, obviously, around the continued vulnerabilities of ransomware attacks uh, with cities and obviously things like the public sector, like hospitals. What do you think uh, is the issue here? What What do you think the public sector could do better? Are they, obviously, they're not doing a good enough job of protecting uh, themselves, but what do you think they need to be doing to protect themselves against these attacks? Well, this is a unique case, and there's a little bit of irony here, actually, right? This particular exploit, it was called Internal Blue, um, and it was developed by the NSA. Now, the NSA has a tremendous amount of resources, so it was quite a sophisticated, it's a good exploit. It's something that you wouldn't normally be able to defend against. And it was, you know, accidentally released. Um, some hackers got a hold of it, and as soon as it got out in the wild, the bad guys, the cyber criminals, began to use that tool and integrate it into their malware. So we saw it used in WannaCry, and you know, obviously the the, the ransomware that hit uh, has hit Baltimore. And so there's there's a challenge there. This isn't even just a normal exploit. This is kind of a top tier exploit. And it's very, very difficult for 
any corporation or even any entire industry to be able to protect it, you know, at that level. Um, so there's a little irony there because the NSA, you know, is using it for obviously purposes uh, for what they do to protect the country, and and it was turned around, and now it's being used against um, our government agencies, local and and whatnot, as well as uh, citizens and and banks. So you know, there's some challenges <laughs> there, and there's definitely some lessons learned there. Um, you know, I've talked to them for, for years and basically said anytime you create an offensive weapon, you better create an antidote at the same time. You better create the ability to be able to detect it and resolve it um, in case it does get out of your hands and is used against you, the citizens, or or even our allies. So this is somewhat of an unusual case, but we're probably going to see more and more of this because nation states are developing all these types of exploits and finding vulnerabilities and using it. So we have to worry about that at a much higher strategic level as well. Um, when it comes specifically to, to Baltimore, and it's a terrible situation. It really is. And, you know, I mean, the worst thing you can do is, is pay a ransom, right, is, is to reward the, um, you know, whoever's extorting you, the criminals. But the second worst thing is to be down for a long period of time and have your services and your organization be ineffective. So it's really the, the, the worst of two worlds. Um, and the key with any ransomware is really about preparation. Um, we we have to understand that it's these types of attacks are going to happen, and we have to be prepared for it. It has to be woven in to the uh, business continuity and disaster recovery plans. I'm sure that they have a plan in case of a fire, right? They need to have plans in case of cyber attacks and. For ransomware, backups typically are the best solution. Um, there's up-and-coming uh, security solutions that also kind of protect in-line, real-time, uh, but they're not 100% effective. So you have to kind of accept that these types of, types of attack will happen, and you have to be able to recover from them, detect them quickly, and recover quickly. So I, what I thought was interesting was that how the, the city of Baltimore uh, decided not to pay the cyber attackers, and I, actually, I'd be curious, um, what percentage do you think of, of people actually do pay, and what do you think of Baltimore's specific decision here? Because uh, my understanding is, you know, nine times out of ten, if you pay, you get your data back or you get your computers unlocked, uh, because it would be a bad economic model for the criminal uh, to, to not do that, given the fact that others will find out and they, they, they won't pay going forward as well. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? And what, and again, what, what percentage finding that actually do pay? So from a percentage perspective, the data is actually kept pretty close to the cuff, right? People don't want to admit, or organizations don't want to admit, number one, if they've been a victim, and two, if they've actually paid the, the, the criminal off. Right, so we've got varying numbers out there, and we even see some companies will go and hire a security company to fix them, right, to to decrypt the files, and in some cases those companies are just spending money to to pay off the the attackers as well, right, and claiming that they decrypted the, the files. So there is not good data about this. Now, one thing that is true is you shouldn't be paying them. And there's many reasons why you shouldn't. So I absolutely agree with the position of Baltimore. And it's a tough position to be in. So, um, uh, you know, I'm, uh, my heart goes out to them. But even if you do pay, and in many cases you do get your data back, or at least some of it, and there's no guarantee. 
uh, you know, the economic model is they're going to give you some keys and you're going to be able to decrypt things. But even the process itself of ransomware and encrypting those files could, you know, destroy some of the integrity of the files. That's one aspect. So you may not get them all back. Number two, you got to worry that you're now on the victim list. You're a preferred customer. They're going to come back. And I can guarantee you they've probably left you a little gifts uh, in your code, in your systems, to make it very easy for them to come back to you. In fact, many of the ransomware will say, okay, you know, we're, we're here to help you decrypt it, right? This is our service. And if you pay us, we guarantee, you know, it won't happen again for a year. And we'll come back in a year and talk with you again, right? Um, and so you become a repeat customer. And unless you want to go in and you want to burn everything down, which is actually the recommended course, take your entire systems, burn them to the ground, and start fresh, well, that's basically what you're going to have to do anyway if you can't get it, um, you know, get it resolved uh, by paying the ransom. So there's, there's not a whole lot of upside other than getting some of your data back sooner than later, but you're going to be a victim again and again and again. So let's shift gears away from uh, Baltimore. Let's talk about general corporates. I mean, I often hear many CEOs uh, speaking at conferences saying that it is definitely, cybercrime is definitely their number one risk facing their, their business uh, today. What percentage of businesses do you think are actually prepared for a cyber attack and um, how are they actually prepared for it? So this is a tough challenge. And first off, it's great to hear CEOs and CIOs uh, and CTOs come out and say, we're concerned about this. If you go back several years, that wasn't the case. And the discussions weren't even heard in the board at the C-level. They were buried down somewhere in IT. So, you know, having this come to light and people understand the risks is hugely important and beneficial. It starts the conversa conversation and allows us to start working together and, and, and address the problem collectively. So the CEOs are absolutely right to be concerned. Uh, the World Economic Forum, right, put cyber risks in their top ten risks. Uh, in fact, for their aggregate risk, I believe it took, like, number – it took three of the, the top ten spots. I think the highest one was uh, number two. So the risks are increasing, and we're seeing companies being dragged in front of Congress, right, because of those kinds of uh, uh, cybersecurity issues. They really need to be concerned. We've seen some companies go out of business because of attacks. So – First and foremost, having the senior level um, understand and recognize the problem, that means they're going to put resources and they're going to start to become more educated and aware. And that's really the number one thing. When I go out to companies and I kind of do an assessment and figure out where they're at and, and they're asking, okay, what do we need to do? The first thing I look at is who's leading their cybersecurity and what access do they have to the board, to the other C-level officers? How are they staffed? How are they resourced? Are they experienced? And the top organizations, they've got the resources, well, mostly the resources that they need, right? Um, and they've got the visibility and they've got the voice and the attention of executives. And that's the first and most important thing, because if you don't have that, security becomes a secondary or tertiary uh, priority, and it only really becomes relevant after you've gotten attacked. And that's really not what you, where you want to be. So most of the big companies uh, that, are, that are addressing cybersecurity very well, uh, industries like the finance 
industry is probably the the best sector. Um, you've got other sectors that are dragging way behind on the other end of the spectrum, like um, healthcare and transportation, critical infrastructure. Uh, they're way behind the curve. But if you take a, a you know a sector like finance, uh, they tend to spend more than any other group. Uh, for cybersecurity, uh, you look at Chase. Chase spends uh, close to a billion dollars a year hmm. on cybersecurity, and they have a tremendous amount of assets to protect. But there's a reason for that, right? If we go back 15 or 20 years, they were the first victims, and they had about as good security as as healthcare does today. But because of all the attacks, because of all the pain, they learned. And they realized, hey, no, we actually need to get ahead of this. We need to invest. We need to, to build this as part of our corp- corporate culture and weave it in. Otherwise, we're going to continually be impacted. So they learned those lessons that it took close to a decade. We're seeing you know, other industries now on that same path. They'll learn faster. Um, but you know, the, the, the real challenge there is making sure you've got a good, program led by quality people, people who are talented in cybersecurity. It's not like other parts of the business. So Matt, um, and that's where a lot of companies talk, fail. So Matt, when you talk about the people, um, and, he, and you, you mentioned Chase, like what percentage of their cybersecurity work would actually be contracted out? Um, you know, it varies uh, because it's You've got kind of defense in depth. You're, you're buying hardware that, that may be security enabled or hardened. Uh, you're buying obviously, uh, software and, uh, inline networking components, things of that sort, uh, devices to put out there. But you're also buying services. Um, and then you're consulting and, and everything else. And you may have, uh, outsourced part of security operations, uh, and things of that. Because security has to be woven into all these different groups, um, it's tough to kind of figure out, all right, you know, what what are we going to spend and, and what needs to be prioritized? Once that kind of happens, then you get into the next cycle of going, okay, can I, how do I improve the cost efficiency of this? And now you start seeing contracting come in and, and, and do it. Um, if you just look at the sheer headcount, I would throw out a guess out there that you're probably talking 30% um, contracting. And a lot of that is due to the fact that you just can't find talent. Right now, it is a desert out there. You know, they're estimating between 2 and 3 million unfilled cybersecurity positions out there by 2021. Um, And so if you don't have that, you have to go through a managed service or you have to go through a security provider that's going to handle it. Or if you have a major incident, you bring in a company that's an expert in responding to cyber crises. So, you know, it's on again, off again as the demand needs. So I see the numbers of, you know, that over $100 billion is being spent on cybersecurity uh, right now. That obviously pales in comparison to the losses that are being incurred from cyber attacks. Um, obviously, I think, I think you'll agree that the number is definitely going to grow. And, you know, some, some studies I've seen show that their cybersecurity spend, spending is growing at about 20% a year. But if you break it down, like, you know, to my knowledge, the three major components of cybersecurity would be hardware, software, and consulting. You know, is right. there a norm in terms of what percentage is being spent on each one of those components? 
You know, I haven't seen good numbers recently in regards to how that's breaking out. Um, you know, especially with hardware, you're talking service agreements that follow on to that. Uh, software is huge, especially as you start getting down into protecting um, endpoints uh, and whatnot. And then services is rising very, very quickly. Uh, and again, it's not just the consulting. It's also let me, you know, respond to these things. Let me, um, you know, bring people in as part of a, a security operations or crisis response or even process management. Um, and so you get a lot of, of different aspects between these two. I haven't seen recent numbers for that split. If you look at just the software for the well, the overall information security market, right? You're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of what about 125, 130 billion. By the time we get to 2022, it's probably hitting right around 170 billion. And those are kind of the traditional IT enterprise costs. And so those are your hardware pieces and whatnot. However, when you look at the overarching spending for security, which encompasses so much more, you're talking at close to a trillion dollars by 2021. So it isn't just the information security assets that you're putting in place. When you're having to put security into your products and you're having to, to um, you know, manage all these things and train your employees, there's a lot of other spending that goes on as well as, okay, you're probably going to see some incidents and you're going to have to spend money there to be able to recover and to address them and meet regulatory requirements and, and all sorts of other things. So the, the $170 billion is just a small piece of that $1 trillion that's probably going to happen by 2021. So, as you know, we have a cybersecurity ETF, and one of the things that we say to people, it's inter very interesting about this space, especially because it gets, it gets categorized as technology from a sector perspective, is that, of course, it's a very different kind of technology. You know, these are not companies creating a smartphone or creating an online television app or an online shopping app or social media. You know, these guys are creating the hardware, software, consulting services to protect our companies. One of the things that we often say, of course, is that, you know, this is, this is one of those areas of non-discretionary spending on behalf of the companies, meaning that if one of our banks, let's just use Chase again as an example, if Chase had a horrible financial quarter of results, uh, it's not as though one of the areas that they're going to cut their spending on is cybersecurity. They probably would cut it in some of the other areas of the market. Are you seeing that development, like, do, do, would you agree with that? That obviously it's one of, it's, from a ranking perspective, it's probably one of the last areas that most institutions would cut their spending on? For certain sectors, absolutely right. Finance, for example, right? Absolutely. They're not going to cut that. Um, but again, you get into other sectors that don't have that maturity. They don't see the value. I still go to companies and sit down with boards, and they're still in complete denial. We're not going to get attacked. Nobody wants to attack us. Right. And, you know, these were the conversations we were having with the industry 10, 15 years ago, screaming at them, going, no, you need to understand you will be. And then all of a sudden they're in the news. Um, so there is still a different there's a wide range of maturity when it comes to cybersecurity uh, and boards and, and executives. So the finance sector, they're good. They're good. They understand the risk. There's regulations there, things of that sort. Um, but on, you know, in, in other markets, in, in other sectors, they're nowhere near it. And if they don't see the value in security, they'll cut it. Absolutely, they'll cut it. In fact, they may not invest very well into it. 
I've seen some horrible practices. I've seen, you know, I was working with a with a group not too long ago, and they were having all sorts of major security issues that, that were coming into the news, and they decided they were going to, you know, build a group. And instead of hiring a security professional, they went and found a finance executive and put them in charge. And the finance executive then surrounded themselves with primarily lawyers, marketing people, and project management people, none of which had security experience. Now think about that. <laughs> that is the absolute perfect recipe for failure. Congratulations. You know, and you would think that that just wouldn't happen, and yet it does. So, again, some markets are better. Others, not so much, and they really need to, to kind of learn. And we tend to learn through pain in cybersecurity, right? Security is not relevant until it fails. And once it fails, then, then, then you feel it and you start to react. Right. So uh, one of the things I find interesting about the space is, in some cases, and I'm curious as to your perspective, is the lack of disclosure. And I understand why. Um, meaning that, you know, you have a number of the publicly listed cybersecurity firms that occasionally will actually name uh, their customer uh, that they just got a contract with. So, for example, I saw um, a few months ago, I guess, Fortinet uh, issued a release saying that they were providing the protection services for U.S. homeland uh, security. Mm -hmm. Why... <clears throat> Am I being too simplistic and saying, isn't that kind of like when we get a security system at our home, we hang up a, a sign out front and say, we're protected by, my house is protected by <laughs> and therefore you're basically showing all the potential professional thieves that, uh, that if they know a way to get around an ADT system, then they could probably break into my house. Like what, like, why, why, what are your thoughts on, the, on that entire disclosure? Do you agree that companies should? I know that they're publicly listed and they're trying to get shareholder value. Do you agree that they should? And I'm kind of surprised that an organization like U.S. Homeland Security would give permission for their name to be released in, in, in that way. Yeah, in general, it's, it's really not good to show your cards when it comes yeah. to cybersecurity, uh, especially in describing what specific products you're using. And you would never talk about how it's configured or the scope or, or something like that. Um, you know, but, you know, putting the sign outside your house saying, hey, we're protected by this alarm company is a means of deterrence. And that can work for you. However, in the cyber world, eh, it's a little bit different. Right. Um, it can help deter some of the attackers, uh, typically ones that are really not, you know, coming specifically at you. They're just looking for the, the easiest victim. And that's a, that's a wide range of attacks. Um, but for the ones that are directed that already have you in their sights, they're simply going to find the easiest way, the path of least resistance to compromise you. You've just given them some insights. You've just given them some insights of what tools you have um, and potentially if they can find exploits in those tools even, right, how to get in. So, you know, again, you want to be more confidential, especially with the, with the products, the security products and services that you use. 
But for the security company, that's a great selling point. Hey, we've got this huge customer ABC. Yeah. You know, come come to us. They trust us. So, you know, from yeah. a marketing perspective, they really want that. And I've seen yeah. some companies offer good discounts, if you will, to say, hey, can we use your name in, in marketing? We're willing to, you know, give more resources or, or cut the price or, or something like that. So there could be financial incentives as well as part of that deal because it definitely benefits the security company. Hmm. So I know that you um, provide some consulting to some of the governments uh, globally. I'm not going to ask you which ones, um, but what are they? What are they most worried about right now? Uh, the number one thing uh, when I meet with them is they want to understand what their enemies are capable of and how they're going to be attacked by them in the digital domain. Uh, and it's for, for many companies, right? If, if we look at the, the nations out there, um, a vast number of them have some type of offensive cyber cap- capabilities. Um, and very soon, all of them will. It is an equalizer. You can have a small country uh, halfway around the other side of the world, no borders with, and if they don't like you, they can reach out and harm you to potentially a great degree. So, you know, this is this is the Wild West, if you will. And governments are very attuned to traditional type of warfare, kinetic warfare and whatnot. And they understand borders and they understand, uh, you know, how to protect things of that sort. But when it comes to cyber, it's kind of a, a fog. And so they really want to know what can my bad, you know, the, the, the bad guys, my, my opponents, what can they do? What are they capable of? And it isn't necessarily just, you know, I'm going to do something from a military strike perspective. It could be intelligence gathering. It could be undermining a political system. It could be seeding dissent uh, for support uh, of the government. It, it can be all sorts of different things. And even just disrupting critical infrastructure at, a, at an important moment can make a big difference. So, they really want to know because the book is now open and it's much bigger of the type of threats and risks they have to deal with. And then the second thing is obviously, okay, how do we stop that? How do we get ahead of that? Right. Um, and, and those tend to be the first two. Every once in a while, uh, especially for some of the larger governments, they want to know what should I be working on from an offensive perspective. You know, we've got some research money. We've got some things we want to do. You know, we have certain kinds of objectives. Uh, what should we be looking at uh, to kind of stretch our dollar and get the biggest bang for the buck? So, so I, I'm pretty sure that uh, the the data that was taken from the Equifax hack about a year and a half, just over a year and a half and a half ago. <laughs> um, to my knowledge, nothing has been done with that data. Is that correct? Uh, so it depends on what you consider done, right? The data is out there. Uh, it's yeah. probably integrated tightly into the the, the dark web. Um, and that kind of information is intelligence gathering. And if you think yeah, about just right. you know, harvesting as much information, right, you're going to use it in different ways down the road. Uh, and so we may never see a direct impact from that and be able to point back specifically to that data breach because there's so, so many different data breaches. So would yeah. you take an educated guess that that was a nation state attack? It was probably either a nation state sponsored attack. Yeah. Um, 
it could have been a direct uh, attack from a nation state. Uh, many nation states kind of farm out some of their attacks to different groups to get it done. So, you know, again, the lines begin to blur. But even if it wasn't sponsored by a nation state, you can probably rest assured that the nation state went afterwards to go purchase that information. So either way, it ends up in their hands, right? Once data gets out there, it's free, and everybody's going to harvest it. So does it even matter, right? Um, from a damage perspective, you have to worry about, okay, everybody that you don't want to have it is probably going to have it. Well, this is really interesting. Before we uh, close off here, uh, Matt, can you talk about um, a few of the the predominant types of cyber crimes that we're going to be seeing uh, over the course of the next few years, and then also maybe uh, provide a little bit of advice uh, for the individual listeners to this podcast as to how they should uh, simple things like how they should protect themselves uh, from a potential. Sure. Or, or cyber or fraud, uh, so on and so forth? So for the, the kind of subsection of cyber crime, um, you know, which, which can impact all of us, uh, individually, businesses, and, and whatnot, uh, we're going to see a lot more ransomware. We're going to see a lot more crypto mining, um, you know, business email compromise in regards to fraud. Uh, we're also going to see a lot more of, uh, the banking industry be targeted. Uh, we've seen swift attacks and, and whatnot. And, and, you know, robbing a bank nowadays is much different than 20 or 30 years ago, right? You don't go in with a, a gun or a knife and, and, you know, get a few thousand dollars. Uh, you plan it out. You use the, the digital assets and you victimize them to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, High-end uh, financial crime teams, organized cyber criminals, they're patient, and the payoff is huge. So we're going to see more in those spaces. From the everyday user, we have to worry again about that malware. We have to worry about that ransomware. We have to worry about those, you know, uh, spam and phishing, things of that sort. The advice that, that we really kind of have to, to understand in our minds is – it's not just a technical problem. Uh, cybersecurity is technical as well as behavioral. In fact, there's even a little sliver of process in there. But for the, for the sake of argument, we do need to have technical controls. So we should all be using, you know, uh, professional uh, security uh, solutions, uh, whether it be on our desktops or laptops, you know, wherever it is. Uh, for businesses, you need to have that integrated within your system. You need to look at your peer group. You need to look at what's, um, you know, considered the norms at the very least, right, best practices. Uh, but there's also that behavioral side. When we look at a lot of these financial crime attacks, they actually start by victimizing the wetware, the person. And we are really a weak point. And so you see a lot of phishing attacks come in. And if a bad guy can get you to click on a link, um, open a file, uh, you know, launch an application, they own you. And you may never know it right, until it's way too late. So we have to train ourselves, our employees, our children, right, to be very wary about that because digital communications and technology, that's how a lot of these attacks are manifesting. So you want to, to up-level your security? I'm sure you have the latest antivirus and, and firewall in your system already, but it's really about the behaviors, right? Are you clicking on that link in email? 
even if it's from your bank. It looks from your bank. Are you clicking on the link in there, or are you opening up a separate web browser and typing in your bank's URL? Yeah. You need to be thinking about these things. So, you know, up-level and upgrade the behavioral security of the people that are touching the data that have the access. That is the biggest bang for the buck right now. Well, as I often say, there's no such thing as an organization that has an employee, that at least one employee that won't click on that link. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's getting worse. It, it really is. Technology is evolving. Especially if you find, especially with the spear phishing, when you find things that are, are interesting. I mean, there's a lot more homework being done than just mass uh, uh, phishing out there. Like the spear phishing is is, is amazing. We've uh-huh. uh, we've had a couple of attempts ourselves. Um, people posing as myself to our employees and 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 uh, trying to get them to uh, buy iTunes gift cards or something like that. It's a uh, yeah. It's a it's a real problem. They're definitely becoming more sophisticated in their attacks. There's no doubt about it. Uh, FBI has seen a huge uptick in, in what they call business email compromise, where again, you know, the attacker is assuming the the character of an executive and, and requesting money or or actions or purchases or things of that sort. So we're seeing a huge uptick. And when we start looking at some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning technologies that are emerging and coming into place. We're going to have some serious issues, uh, everybody, when it comes to trust. Uh, when you're hearing someone's voice, when you're seeing someone's face, you just, you're not going to know. Is it really that person? Yeah. Uh, all the way down to accents and how someone types and sends messages, it's going to be more difficult. Well, as I often say, you know, our increased connectivity in the world uh, offers a lot of interesting advantages and makes our life more efficient, but uh, it still comes with some downsides and uh, things to be concerned about, and cybersecurity is definitely one of them. On that note, thank you very much for your time today, Matt. That was a great session, and I look forward to speaking to you again. Outstanding. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Evolve ETFs podcast. If you like this podcast, please like this post. Subscribe to this channel by clicking on the subscribe button. Ensure to sign up for our newsletter by visiting our website, EvolveETFs.com. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.